To hear the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. U.S. support for Israel isn't only limited to the military support, the financial support, or the diplomatic support. Those are the ones we're just the most aware of. And certainly they are massively important. But even if you got rid of all of that stuff, you would still have this legal infrastructure inside the United States that presents Palestine and Palestinians as pariahs. So if we want to think about dismantling this superstructure, we shouldn't forget about how our own domestic laws are playing such an important role in that project. the death panel patrons thank you so much for supporting the show we absolutely could not do any of this without you your support helps keep this show going keeps us ad free and helps us devote the time necessary to make our episodes possible so we're very grateful for the support and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pick up a copy of health communism at your local bookstore pre-order my co-host jules's new book which will be out next week a short history of trans misogyny or request them both at your local library and follow us at death panel underscore so today i am here with a guest that i am so excited to talk to mariam jamshidi she is associate professor of law at the university of colorado boulder law school where she teaches and writes in the areas of national security public international law the law of foreign relations and torts law and we're going to be talking about two recent pieces that mariam wrote the first is from the law and political economy blog from november called students for justice in palestine governors for authoritarianism in florida and the second piece is from december which was in boston review called instruments of dehumanization mariam welcome to the death panel it is so great to have you on the show it's wonderful to be here thank you for having me thank you so much for joining me i have been very excited for this interview i've been planning it for a little while and as a result, I've done way too much background reading, <laughs> you know, just because I've really enjoyed learning so much from your work this fall. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about these two pieces that you wrote. But before we get into those, I'd like to start us off with a just sort of more general question here. Um, can you talk about how your work as a legal scholar informs where you're coming from or what you're coming to this conversation with? Because today we're talking about how law, specifically U.S. law, both federal and state, has been shaped into a sophisticated and targeted tool of Palestinian repression, why it is that way, how it came to be, what it materially operates like, and why these laws are rather uniquely crafted specifically against Palestinian self-determination, as well as, of course, the ways in which this is being expanded right now. So I've been digging into your scholarly work since reading your piece in LPE blog, and um, we'll talk about that one towards the end. And I really, really appreciated, for example, the additional depth that I got by going and reading your prior longer form, more specifically academic work on, for example, uh, the piece on how the war on terror influenced not just public law, like criminal law, immigration, constitutional law, mm -hmm. but also private law, shaping mm -hmm. torts, civil suits. I also found your work on executive power and national security so fascinating, as well as the article you wrote about the real truth of the laws that are supposed to govern armed conflict, which is, you know, particular relevance to our conversation today. So 
you know, you have deep background on this, but um, (laughs) for all of our listeners who, unlike me, have not necessarily spent the past few months reading your work, can you talk about your work and your focus as a law scholar? Sure. Um, So to sort of take a step back, I sort of got engaged on Palestine um, when I was still in school. So I was a graduate student in London in uh, 2002, 2003, which is a very long time ago. I was studying in London, and this was in the middle of the Second Intifada. And the coverage of that event in London was very different from what I experienced in the United States. And that sort of sort of began my journey of interest and mm. involvement and commitment uh, to, to the issue of Palestine. I won't bore you with all the other sort of Palestine-related things I did before I became sort of a lawyer, but... Once I did start practicing law, and this was very much happenstance, it wasn't something I had planned, um, I ended up going into a private law firm, which was not something I had expected to do when I was in law school at all. (laughs) And as it happened, the work that I ended up doing at that private law firm um, involved working on federal civil laws um, that intersect with Palestine in ways that I was completely unaware of before I started working. So I, I met. I talk about some of these laws in the Boston Review piece, um, but basically, you know, most of them, if not, you know, certainly the ones I talk about in the piece, were in large part motivated by a desire to allow individuals who had been um, injured or killed in violent activity by Palestinian groups um, in historic Palestine to bring federal suits in U.S. courts for damages, oftentimes not directly against those groups, although those groups would oftentimes be implicated or even named as defendants, but rather against third parties that provided what's called material support, some kind of support, usually financial, sometimes other kinds of support that, according to litigants, facilitated or made possible these attacks. And, you know, the more I did the work at the law firm, the more I came to realize there was this connection. It wasn't explicit in the law itself. But when you looked at the legislative history, when you looked at the vast majority of cases being brought and who was bringing them, those were the targets. And, you know, certainly we might all be sympathetic to victims of violence, you know, victims whether they've been injured or killed of violent activity, certainly deserve accountability for what they've experienced. But at the same time, when you look at the broader sort of context, the broader overview of who gets to bring suits against whom and why, as well as the motivations behind passing these laws, it starts to look less like it's only about providing recourse for victims and more like it's part of a larger ecosystem that's meant to present Palestinians as individuals, as groups, as a political entity, as being particularly inclined towards acts of terrorism. Mm. So the work in the private law firm actually, I think more than anything else, started me on this path of sort of looking for and being very conscious of the way U.S. law, and we can talk about international law if you would like as well, but certainly U.S. law plays such an important role, both in terms of delegitimizing the Palestinian cause, 
tarring Palestinians as violent terrorists and marginalizing Palestinians as a community, both globally and inside the United States. And then, you know, I practiced for a number of years and then became an academic. And that just afforded me more of an opportunity to sort of explore the ways in which these laws, which I was interested in separate and apart from Palestine, you know, there are these these uh, federal civil laws that allow for suits uh, relating to terrorism, uh, terrorism uh, related injuries, have all sorts of problems with them. It's not just the fact that they are sort of designed and intended in, in, in many ways to target Palestinians um, as terrorists. They have other other shortcomings. But in exploring and unpacking these laws, I came to understand even more so how their design, their implementation and their use, in particular by Israeli NGOs, serves a certain political objective and program. Mm. I so appreciate that additional backstory. I think it's fascinating that you came to it through practice. I mean, when initially I had reached out to you um, after I read the LPE blog piece about Ron DeSantis and repression of pro-Palestinian organizing and speech at Florida universities. But I'm also very excited to talk about this piece of the picture that is essentially for what I hope for many of our listeners might be a kind of expansion of the way that Mm -hmm. we think about U.S. complicity in the genocide and, you know, complete political repression and support of the ecocide in Palestine. So I think first we'll talk about this Boston Review piece, which, um, again, for listeners, this one's called Instruments of Dehumanization. And I'd like to start us there because It's about Israeli efforts to influence U.S. law and policy to undermine Palestinian liberation and self-determination. And you get into the ways, in particular, that Palestinians are singled out by U.S. law. And so in this piece, you talk about this history that I was a little less familiar with, like, you know, the impact of these specific sort of moments where Israel sets out to shape the narrative and to shape policy in the the U.S. quite intentionally. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, even, you know, you start by talking about this 1979 conference on uh, so-called international terrorism that was hosted in Jerusalem, convened by none other than uh, Bibi Benjamin Netanyahu, who is the current prime minister of Israel and past prime minister as well, twice past prime minister, actually first from 1996 to 1999, and again from 2009 to 2021. So that sort of story I I absolutely loved. And I wonder if you sort of t- can talk a little bit about that 1979 conference and yeah. what you call this kind of novel view of terrorism that B.B. and his father very specifically present at this conference. And, mm-hmm. you know, can you set up for listeners how that conference, as you put it, really marks the beginning of sustained efforts by Israel to reshape U.S. Mm-hmm. law in its favor? Sure. So, so yeah, so the history of repression with respect to Palestine goes back in the United States, goes back a very long way. And and I think a lot of your listeners probably know that. Um, What they might be less familiar with is the way in which U.S. law has really been used for a very long time in a variety of different ways to enact and enforce that repression. And I, I would say that it begins sort of with this conference in large part. So this conference is hosted by Bibi Netanyahu and his father, Ben Zion, who was actually the real lead on that particular conference in 1979. Um, Benjamin, although plays a very important role, both in that one and then in a a follow-on conference that happens a few years later. Um, The conference was really important because it was an opportunity for 
you know, for Israelis, um, because it was, you know, obviously convened by the Netanyahu's, but there were a number of Israeli officials that attended um, the event. And it was specifically used as an opportunity to bring in American interlocutors, so American officials, American politicians, American policymakers, to sort of introduce to them and push to them this notion of terrorism. That was something already embedded within Israel. So it it was a very Israeli notion of terrorism that hadn't really taken hold in the United States or globally yet. So let me take a step back to sort of talk about uh, very briefly this concept of terrorism before, like sort of as it existed at the time of this conference generally. So in the 70s, you know, this notion of terrorism that we are familiar with today didn't didn't exist in this kind of way. When people talked about political violence, they talked about it actually usually usually using a different term, a term called insurgency, I mean, which, which is a term I think, you know, people are probably still very aware of and have heard of before. But this was the, the term that was used more often to refer to political violence than terrorism. And the, the notion, this notion of insurgency wasn't one that had any particular moral um, valence to it. It wasn't necessarily attaching any kind of normative judgment to the political violence, whether it was good or bad, evil or otherwise. It was a descriptive term. It was a term that was used to describe a particular kind of tactic, using violence for political ends to sort of urge or um, put pressure on a government or civilian population to do a certain political thing. Um, that was that was effectively how a lot of analysts and government governments thought about political violence, you know, in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, even earlier than that. Now, this is not to say that, you know, these analysts or governments were OK with this kind of violence, but rather that it didn't have the same kind of um, moral opprobrium attached to it that it does currently. And it wasn't identified with a particular ethnic or national group. Um, and in fact, it, it could also be used against states too. So states as terrorist actors were, were was something that was more commonly um, sort of thought about and described in the 1970s and earlier. Then we have this conference that comes along. And at this conference, what the Netanyahu's really promote is a notion of terrorism that is very much about morals, um, that very much describes this concept as not just a tactic, but a, a fundamentally evil um, and immoral act. Uh, that also is specifically aimed at destroying the West. So that becomes an important part of the terrorism narrative as well, that the Netanyahu's promote, that terrorism is an evil act intended to destroy the West and Western civilization. It is an existential threat. And it is coming from Arabs and Muslims generally and Palestinians in particular. So they present this narrative at this conference primarily to what we would now call uh, a bunch of neoconservative ideologues. Many end up becoming a part of the Reagan administration um, shortly thereafter. And again, it wasn't just the Netanyahu's. It was also other Israeli officials that were there promoting this notion to the Americans of a, a notion of terrorism that carried this kind of new weight and significance to it. The Americans were particularly interested in it actually because of how it could be used in the Cold War, which was still raging at that point, how it could be used against the Soviet Union to delegitimize the Soviet Union. The Israelis were 
you know, uh, very savvy in terms of how they presented it. They made the connection to the Soviet Union as well, knowing that the U.S. uh, officials attending the conference would be particularly interested in that angle. Um, But they the connection, the way they made that connection was effectively to say the Soviet Union is supporting terrorism committed by these Arab Muslim Palestinian groups. That was what they really cared about. What the Israelis really cared about was that Arab Muslim and specifically Palestinian connection to terrorism. And of course, what is, I think, probably obvious to anyone who hears this story is the reason the Israelis wanted to push this narrative was to delegitimize Palestinians, their fight for self-determination, and any and all individuals and entities that supported them, the Arab governments that supported them, um, the PLO, first and foremost, Yasser Arafat. These were these this shifting of the narrative was aimed at delegitimizing the work being done by the PLO and Arafat to create some kind of opportunity for self-determination for the Palestinians in historic Palestine. And we might also remember this is, you know, a couple of years after the Israelis occupy the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. So they're also now controlling hundreds of thousands, the lives of hundreds of thousands more Palestinians than they were before 1967. So they have a demographic threat that looms very large at this point as well, that is going to present a problem for them down the line in the immediate and long term. And so this becomes an important tool in dealing with the reality of occupation as well. I mean, we can talk about, you know, historic Palestine as well and the reality before 1967, which was also pretty awful for the Palestinians living inside of 1948 Palestine. But the shift in 1967 to occupy even more Palestinian territory really creates an urgency to delegitimize the Palestinian cause, which was also gaining momentum over the course of the 70s in the United Nations, um, internationally, uh, more generally, and was becoming a cause celebre for a lot of individuals and groups. The Israelis really needed to stop that from growing any further. And this conference was an important step towards achieving that goal. To hear the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to this and the rest of our catalog of patron-only episodes, and be the first to get a new patron episode every Monday when it drops. With love, the Death Panel.